Hello and welcome to Now Fear This. Hello and welcome to Now Fear This, the podcast. Nope. Hello and welcome to Now Fear This. <laughs> you can put all that in if you'd like. Hello and welcome to Now Fear This with Becky and Marie, the podcast about all the things that scare the shit out of us and a few things that don't. Yeah. It scares me. I want to say, I know I'm, I'm not st- supposed to start with my fear, but I'm scared that I can't remember our intro. And then <laughs> I'm fearing the exit, that too. The exit is so complicated that screw that. I'll never do the exit. <laughs> so I'm just going to tell you a little intro story about myself. I did do drama in high school and I thought a little bit about doing drama in college. And the problem is I'm better at public speaking and debate because it's extemporaneous. I cannot memorize lines, period. So when I did plays in high school, I would always get the lead role because I had the acting chops and the charisma, but I would just make up my lines, which would frustrate my co-actors and the director. So I get the gist. Yeah, of that would be frustrating. <laughs> As it's it a is, big part of the acting is the line. Yes, yes. So every night you had to just roll with it. You didn't know how the plot was going to turn out based on what lines I said. Oh, yes. But my cousin Emily, who has kind of a photographic memory, she played my sister in this one play, and we were both wealthy heiresses. And I list off all my debts. And then she's supposed to say a number at the end of how much money we owe. Well, in the script, there's specific numbers, but every night I would say different numbers. But she, she was to add it up. She was able to add it up on the spot. <laughs> That's a superpower. Yeah. I like that one. All um, right. So other than fearing my inability to remember anything about our podcast, <laughs> are you fearing anything else today? <laughs> well, I'm fearing my terrifying red lips and inappropriate eyebrows because I'm playing with these zoom there's like a there's a beta where you can like adjust your makeup but just like just your eyebrows and your lips so instead of being subtle because that's not my middle name I went for the bright red and I I can't fathom how terrifying it must look on a full screen on your computer and I apologize I wanted to ask what was going on with your lips because honestly, they're pretty looking. They're disembodied from your face. I look like baby Jane. Actually, when you're doing different things, your lips are separated from your face. Do you want me to go and turn it off? Because God help me if I even know how. Let me see. Wait, so this is a filter that's... Yes, they have these weird filters. If you go into background and filters and then studio effects, you can turn off. I'm going to turn it off. There, I turned it off. You're welcome. My eyebrows are still here. I'm going to leave the brows. Honestly, it was so jarring that now you look weird without it. Now yeah, you look, it look like, like my cor- normal like, like corpse. <laughs> <laughs> now my lips look blue. Like yeah, they look blue. Actually, my eyes may be damaged from seeing. <laughs> I, I'm seeing like little floaters and chasers everywhere now. Your lips are all over the place. I'm wow. It's terrifying. I know. I'm sorry yeah. about that. Y'all be careful with the zoom filters out there. They can really mess with you. Yeah. And freak people out. But then people, if you're at a work function, people might not want to tell you that you look ridiculous. So if you're going to do them for a bit, you want to do them for fun, to look like a cat or whatever, not the red look. On my Zoom work filters, I always put like a padded room as like the background. <laughs> That's awesome. That's one of the choices? Or you just... just I just found a padded that? room on the internet and just put it just, behind me. <laughs> Okay, is that all we have on Zoom filters? Well, it's not my fear as much as my boss's fear, 
um, with the Zoom filters because somebody introduced me to Snapchat a couple of years ago. It was a coworker. And the only thing I ever use it for is those filters that you can do to yourself. Like there's a filter where I can make myself look like a dude. And I'm actually a pretty handsome dude. I want to see that. Uh, I will send you a picture of me as a dude. So like I would take a picture of myself. I look kind of like a frat daddy making these weird smiles. And like I would text my coworkers and be like, hey, ladies, <laughs> stuff like that. You me too to your coworkers? Sexually harassing. <laughs> <laughs> And they were like, stop it. You're creeping me out. But then I found another filter where I could take someone's face and combine it with my face to create a hybrid of the two of us. And that's when my boss was like, okay, stop sending me these filters. (laughs) You are really creeping me out now. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. That's one thing. A live Zoom is another. You really want to look like an asshole. Give yourself the red lips. Right. Um, and then you're guaranteed to look like an absolute asshole. Yeah. So and don't um, accidentally jerk off in a, a live Zoom either. Also, good, good hint. I mean, that's important information. <laughs> Tips. <laughs> Try not to jerk off on a Zoom. So I, uh, I got, is that it? What are you fearing today? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I guess I'm just, re- you know, reminiscing about my hometown because we did Kenneth Allen McDuff. I'm fearing another murder that happened in Waco. And actually, there's so many things about this murder that I'm fearing. This is the craziest murder story I think you will ever hear in your life. And it's literally got everything. Every plot twist, every cliche, everything you can think of that happens in a murder story. So I don't know, this may end up being a two-parter because... Really? Yeah, because I didn't even realize all the details of it. I just... I kind of stopped at the murder part, right? I had started to read that Texas Monthly article, by the way, the great Texas Monthly. It was so complicated, I couldn't finish it. I feel like it was a novel. I mean, it, it went on yeah. and on and on. So yeah, we could do two episodes on this. Okay. So this is the quintessential murder story. And there's a book about it called Careless Whispers, which is supposed to be pretty good, but it's told from a certain perspective and it may be a bit outdated at this point. There's a movie starring Robert Conrad, which I didn't watch because I had heard who I'm sorry, Robert Conrad. He's an older actor. You'll have to just look him up. Okay. But they were saying the movie was kind of loosely based. So I didn't really want to taint my thinking with the movie that maybe wasn't accurate. And I wondered why there weren't any more like 2020 or Dateline or something on these murders. And one, I don't think you could do an episode, just one episode. And two, a lot of the key players either wouldn't participate or are dead. So many. So many of them are dead. Dead by suicide, too. It's really remarkable. Dead by all sorts of strange ways. Yeah. It it almost reminds me, like, there's coincidence and then there's nefarious things going on. It reminds me of, like, Mumia Abdu-Jamal. He was a political activist and a journalist that killed a Philadelphia police officer. And then basically after that, everyone involved in the crime ended up disappearing or dying. Well, I don't and, know that story. We got to tell that story. Yeah, sometime. we, should, uh, we should talk about that one. This was another 80s. Yeah, so maybe we'll highlight that story. But okay. what's interesting about this story, and as we get into it, you'll see, is it's not just a straightforward murder. It's a murder and then... As we get into it, there's false confessions. There's police officers doing bad things. I mean, it's everything in the kitchen. It's everything. 
prosecutorial misconduct, false witnesses. It's insane. But we haven't even said what we're talking about. No, no. (laughs) Sorry. So in, in July of 1982 in Waco, Texas, my hometown, there were two fishermen uh, that were heading out to a place called Caney Park. It's, it's spelled weird. It's K-O-E-H-N-E. So you- oh, but Caney? It, like Koenig, like Sarah Koenig who does yeah. uh, cereal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Like so just a little context. Waco is connected to a dam and that dam created Lake Waco. It's along the Brazos River. And Lake Waco is divided into a number of different parks. Off of Highway 6, there's this historic thing called the Twin Bridges. And this is a landmark in Waco. And all of these parks are places where people hike and hang out. But more importantly, teenagers go to these parks, drink and smoke weed and party. Kind of like the lover's lane type of thing. It's pretty much a cliche, right? Yeah. And it may even go back to our episode on camping. Like when you go out into the wilderness by yourself or you go out to a remote location with other people that you don't know very well, you could be putting yourself in danger. Well, these two fishermen are heading out to Caney Park and they see a creepy sort of thing. They think it's maybe a drunk teenager playing a prank. There's a a young man leaning up against a tree with some aviator sunglasses on, but they're kind of cockeyed on his face and he looks passed out drunk. And so they're kind of saying something to him to wake him up. But when they get closer, they notice that his shirt is completely red with blood and he's dead. So they immediately leave the scene to contact police. And then when the police get there, they first see Kenneth Franks. He's an 18 year old. He's the one with the glasses. He's been bound and gagged and stabbed 19 times and one time in the neck. Good Lord. Kenneth Franks, father had called the police saying he was missing. And there were two girls with him and their parents had also called and said they were missing. So the police officer- missing how long? Two days. So- Police officers were like, okay, they were together. This is not a good sign. The girls are probably here too. Well, as they're closing off the crime scene area, 35 yards away, they find Jill Montgomery and Raylene Rice. These are two 17-year-old girls. They were bound and gagged. They were nude, stabbed multiple times, and they had their throats slit. And then, of course, autopsy reports show that they were also raped. So on the scene at this particular crime is a police officer by the name of Truman Simmons. It's a pretty good name, right? That's like a- That's a, That is a real good police officer name. Yeah. That's a good Waco, Texas, 1980s lawman. Name. Yeah, that's a badass name. Like Tommy Lee Jones needs to play Truman Simmons. Right? <laughs> so true. <laughs> so Truman was this guy who, when he was young, he didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life. And he dropped out of high school. And then this is like the 1950s. So he basically needed a profession because he had a family. So he decided to become a police officer. And I guess when he started it, it was just kind of like a job, but then he fell in love with it. And he worked his way up to becoming a detective. But this is where it starts to get into that territory of like movie cliches. He was hard to work with, like nobody could get along with him. He didn't Ooh, want a loner. Yeah. He didn't right. want a partner. He always wanted to do yeah. things on his own. Yeah. I work by myself. Dirty Harry. So other officers would also complain that he wasn't exactly a by the book sort of guy. 
But the thing is, he was always solving murders. So the brass was like, well, even though I don't get along with him, and even though he's breaking the rules a little bit, he's doing a good job. Let's just let him do his thing. The lone wolf. <laughs> you would just think that like somebody wrote this for a Hollywood script. Yeah. So he's doing the late night shift, which nobody wants to do anyway. So it's fine. He's the first patrolman on the scene. And he is completely mortified by what he sees, as would anybody, right? Waco is a strange place because it's not free from crime. It has those small town Magnolia vibes, but Waco is a very segregated place. So poor people and people of color are segregated. I don't know if it's still like that, but it was when I lived there. Like there was a lot of crime going on. It's just that certain people never experienced it. So Truman had seen some bad stuff, but he'd never seen anything like this. And the book Careless Whispers is based on the fact that Simmons says that when he was investigating the crime scene, he leaned down and whispered into the ear of Jill that he was going to get the guys that did this. They were going to pay for this. So this was like a mission for him to nail whoever did this. So there were a couple of weird things about the crime scene that I'm just going to read you from the Texas Monthly article. Investigators had learned the girls had driven from Waxahachie. Do you know where that is? Have you ever heard of that? No, it's somewhere around there. And there's some horrible crimes that we should talk about from Waxahachie. From Waxahachie. Scarborough Fair is in Waxahachie. So that's why I know it. I've been. Let me rewind my fear today. Um, (laughs) Scarborough Fair. Fear Scarborough Fairs. (laughs) Oh, anyway. The girls had driven from Waxahachie, an hour north of Waco, in Raylene's orange Ford Pinto to pick up Jill's last paycheck from Fort Fisher at the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum, where she had been a guide tour that spring. The girls cashed it at a supermarket and drove to Kenneth's house. Jill knew Kenneth from the Methodist home, which they're classifying in this article as a boarding school for troubled and academically challenged kids. Kenneth told his father they were going to Caney Park, which was across from Lake Spiegelville Park. It was a spot where teenagers often congregated to smoke and hang out. So several people saw them arrive at Caney Park in Raylene's car, and they never saw them leave. Nobody ever heard screams. Investigators couldn't figure out how they'd gotten across the lake to Spiegelville. There was no evidence of a boat. There were no tire tracks around the Spiegelville gate, which closed at 11. A couple of Bud Light cans found near Raylene's body yielded no fingerprints. The grass around the girls was flattened as if they had struggled with whomever killed them, but there was no knife and very little blood. And apparently they were stabbed many times, which is strange. That's very strange. You're still struggling, but no blood is gushing. I don't, yeah, I don't get that at all. Okay. As Sergeant Dennis Kidwell said to the Waco Tribune Herald, there was an amazing lack of evidence. Officers combed the parks repeatedly, interviewed 150 to 200 people, yet found few clues and no discernible motive. Nothing like this had ever happened in Waco. So they're basically investigating this and they can't find anyone that will tell them anything. They can't find any evidence. And then... Truman goes to the chief of police and says, put me in charge of this case. I feel passionate about it. I feel like I can crack this case. So they put him in charge of it. Well, he receives a tip from this woman. She was friends with the two women who had died, Lisa 
Cater was her name. Lisa described to Truman a situation at the Methodist home. Now, my mom did driving school lessons for people at the Methodist home. And I think I've told you before, my parents worked at a children's home, a different children's home in Texas for many years. And the way these children's homes work, you have a variety of kids there. You do have orphans, but more so you have kids who have been taken away from their parents by the court. And rather than going into a foster care situation, they get sent to this home. Instead of going to juvenile detention, in some cases, it's a lot of teenagers and it's a lot of kids with a ton of problems. So many of them have been molested or are involved in drugs. And so it all means put them in close quarters with each other. Exactly. I so, mean, teenagers, they'll figure that shit out and get squared away, right? Right. Yeah. In my opinion, it's not a good situation. Not ideal. And I've read articles that say that Jill and Kenneth were both dyslexic. They'd been in trouble with the law. They had both had drug problems. And now they're brought together at this home. I think they're bringing it up because maybe that's what connected them. They had a lot of things in common. And and I think there's going to be this kind of mixing of 'er ne'er-do-wells with these kids too, because of the drug aspect. So, so Lisa was one of their friends and she informed the police that there was a conflict going on between Kenneth and a guy that ran a convenience store across the street from the Methodist home. This guy's name was Munir Deeb and he was 23 years old. He was a Jordanian immigrant and he owned the Rainbow Inn convenience store. And apparently he and Kenneth had gotten into it over drugs or something And this is another thing about this story is everybody's got nicknames. So Munir walked with a limp and got the nickname Lucky. I'm not sure. Okay, I'm going to... Behind that. I wrote this down because I was reading that beginning part of the um, article. And Guy Kenneth, and I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead, but he sounds kind of like an asshole. Yeah, he, he made fun of the guy Deeb who ran the store. He made fun of his limp. He called him names. He called him racial yeah. slurs. Blurred him. I was like, Kenneth, you're not coming off too good in this story here, bruh. Nah, Kenneth was. That's my point. Is you have some kids that are up to no good. Not that they deserve to be murdered, but they're getting involved with drugs and bad people. And actually, Munir was too. So. Deep. Yeah, I mean, the thing about this is like, I mean, about all people, I guess, you know, nobody's either all good or all bad. So there's definitely two sides of all these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Munir Deeb had this crush on Gail Kelly, who was a 16 year old girl from the Methodist home, and he had hired her to work in his store. And apparently Gail would hang out with Kenneth and that made Munir jealous. And so there was also some tension there. But Kelly took the job, and interestingly enough, before she even started working there, Munir took out a life insurance policy on her. That was so fucking weird. (laughs) Right? It's so weird. Yeah. Do you ever wonder if people are taking life insurance policies out on you? Can you do that? Here's here's what's weird about it. I know a little bit about life insurance, and I'm proud of my bragging. Wow, the way you said that was so arrogant. I know a little bit about those. Crime and life insurance. Now, Curtis, you know, one of the things he does is he sells life insurance. And I worked in his office for a while and everything. 
the thing that's weird is you can't take life insurance policies out unless there is an interest as in and has to be a relative of yours and it can't just be any relative of yours. So like I couldn't take a life insurance policy out on, you know, some famous person so that I would profit from their death. I have to have some sort of relationship with them. And I know somebody who was turned down who tried to get life insurance on their grandchild because they're not close enough related. So I was really curious as to how he got this life insurance policy, but to read the part about kind of how he did it, how he listed their relationship. Well, I don't know. Go ahead. In the Texas Monthly article, it says that he listed her as his common law wife. Oh, I do remember reading that. (laughs) I do remember reading that. That is super weird and creepy. I, I guess I glossed over that because when the police asked him why he did it, he said it was because it was cheaper than uh, taking out workman's comp insurance. Really? Ooh, that's weird too. What a weird so thing he was to saying say. in case there was like an accidental death at the convenience store, which I don't know why that would be a big concern, like, but whatever, super, super shady. And it's like, mm-hmm. if he is innocent, how people dig themselves into these holes with stupid behavior. Because there's really no justification for him taking out a life insurance policy on a girl that he has a crush on, right? I don't know that you can say there's anything but nefarious reasons for taking an insurance policy out on a 16-year-old you're not related to and saying she's your common-law wife. Well, and then you also have the factor of this uh, Methodist home, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of the, these kids are just treated like they're trash. like they're Yeah, all- and taken advantage of. Yeah, and- these children's homes are like hotbeds for rape and molestation even from other kids that are in the facility i know when i say that these children's homes are hotbeds for this kind of stuff it's usually from other kids it's like prison i think about not all the kids but for many of the kids who end up there it's because they were misbehaving in school or you know and sometimes that's violence sometimes that's really terrible behavior and putting them in another place where they can mess with other kids i don't like i said it's not ideal it's not ideal, no. So, I mean, Munir Deeb, he knew he's living across from this situation. And at least in the case of Gail Kelly, who he took out the life insurance policy on, he was taking advantage of somebody who he thought maybe didn't have any family that cared about them. That's, that's my impression. So basically, the police interview Munir because he had said to some people that he went to the movies with, it was some violent movie, so it's the 1980s, it's probably like, one of the Friday the 13th movies or something. They just said a gory, violent movie. Deeb was telling some of the people that he was with that he killed the girls and and killed Kenneth at the park. Oh, nice. So of course, word spreads and then Lisa relays that to police officers. So Truman confronts him. They bring him in for questioning and he adamantly says he didn't do it. He was like, He hated this guy, Kenneth, and he said it jokingly. It was just a joke. It was like him saying, screw it. I don't care if this guy's dead. I'm glad he's dead. Yeah, and I'm the one He's an asshole anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird sense of humor, you know, but then he's a guy with a limp who's got the name Lucky, so I- I don't know. So many questions. (laughs) Yeah. Lisa also gives a tip to Truman that- Deeb has been hanging out with this rough biker guy, Chili. Chili happens to be the main suspect in this case, David Wayne Spence. Now, the only thing that- name Wayne, he's already saddled with the, yeah. The police were getting a whole ton of 
tips from people. And this was the only one that seemed like on the level, but here's a couple of other tips that they were getting. For days, the department's phone rang nonstop as people called with leads, most of which amounted to nothing. Someone claimed that members of a biker gang known as the Scorpions had bragged about the killings. Someone else reported having given a ride to an extremely nervous man with blood on his pants who had been walking along a nearby highway on the morning after the bodies were found. One reporter said that someone had been doing Indian rituals near the crime scene. Another said there was a devil cult operating. There it is. Devil cult. Devil, devil cult. cult. We need to do a bingo card of these uh, old, like, I cults, know. you know? Golly. Well, I mean... Honestly, the guy walking around with blood in his pants, it's July. He might have put a firecracker up his butt. July in Waco can be a dangerous time for teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. All right. My goodness. Okay. Anyway, so Chili is hanging out with Deeb at the Rainbow Inn convenience store, playing video games and talking trash. Chili has told a number of people that he killed the kids. Oh. He's bragged about it. And interestingly enough, Chili and Deeb will admit to people that they actually confessed to killing the kids to other people, but that they were just bragging. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, any friend of mine try to impress me by bragging that they were a fucking psychotic rapist murderer. Right? Like, where, where did things go wrong in their life? Like you were bragging about knowing a lot about insurance earlier <laughs> and you, you were already ready to break up with me. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I was thinking about president Biden, his whole story about getting arrested in South Africa or Brian Williams telling stories. Like those are stories that make you sound cool, right? right. You're getting arrested in South Africa because you're trying to help Nelson Mandela. That makes you look cool. But I went on vacation and I almost got nailed for some rapes. That's not a cool story. That's like, ooh, tell me more. Yeah, it's strange. But then think about Kenneth Allen McDuff and the people that he paired with. They were into his stories about torturing and raping. So I'm amazed also at how many people in all of these stories lie to friends and other people about that they've committed murder. You know, mm-hmm. and then we still go, oh, well, if he said it, it must be true. Well, no, tons of people confess to this murder to their friends. How do you know which one you're going to pick and choose is the one who did it? Yeah. And there are people that just see themselves as criminals, like that's their okay. identity. And they yeah. enjoy putting people off or making people uncomfortable. So it's really hard sometimes to figure out are they really doing this bad stuff or are they just trying to make me feel uncomfortable? And of course, me, I'm the type of person that I want to always seem unflappable. So I'll just be like, yeah, whatever, you know. But in retrospect, I think I should have probably been like, I don't think I should talk to this person anymore, (laughs) you know. (laughs) So it turns out that as Truman is investigating this guy, Chili, he finds out that Chili has a buddy by the name of Gilbert Melendez. And both of them are in big trouble. They're in jail currently because they kidnapped a teenage boy and stabbed him in the leg and then david wayne spence forced this boy to give oral sex to gilbert melinda jesus and gilbert has been in and out of jail and did some time in prison in the 1970s for 
sexual assault and aggravated assault with intent to murder. So of wow. course, Truman Simmons is sitting here going, all right, Deeb got out this life insurance policy. He puts together that Kelly and the girl Jill that was killed look very similar. He theorizes that Deeb wanted to have Kelly killed and he hired David Wayne Spence, Gilbert Melendez and Gilbert Melendez's brother, Tony, to kill Kelly. And they went to Caney Park thinking that Jill was Kelly, partied with them, and then the murders happened. So that's the theory that is concocted from all of this. Kelly just happens to look like Jill and that's the leap we made? Yeah, that's the leap. Okay. Okay. And then I also think okay. that Truman was like, all these people are connected through the Methodist home. And these two guys are violent rapists that use a knife. So this is all circumstantial. And the head of the police department and the DA were all like, this is not enough to bring these people up on charges. It doesn't it's sound just, like it. No, it's like too sketchy. How do you leap to murder for hire? You better show me some money changing hands. And I mean, these guys are rapists and people who stab people because they're violent. You don't just hire them. That's okay. So Simmons works the late shift. He's going up to the jail and everybody likes him. It's big bro club. So they allow him access to David Wayne Spence. He's literally going up there every night and having conversations with David Wayne Spence giving him food and cigarettes and allowing him contact with his girlfriend and all sorts of stuff. And according to numerous articles that I read, going to other people in the jailhouse and feeding information from the case to them and getting them to snitch. So seems like this guy, our lone wolf, pretty much how he closed all his cases, isn't it? Yeah, somebody on the street would tell him what they'd heard and he would put out feelers to the guys on the street, right? Exactly. So at one point, and I think David Wayne Spence was a bit arrogant too. I think he was playing a game with Truman and he was enjoying the conversation and they're like meeting every night talking. And Truman at a certain point reveals that he thinks that Spence did it. And Spence is like, oh, that's weird that you think that. He's like, if I did it, I don't remember And then they concoct this idea together that maybe Chili is his alternate personality. But it really feels like David Wayne Spence is just playing a game to amuse himself. At some point, this story is so complicated. I suggest, really interested in it, read the Texas Monthly article like three times and maybe you'll get it. I don't know. It's very complicated. So (laughs) maybe we should just caveat this that we're going to hit most of the highlights, not even all the highlights. (laughs) Right because it is really convoluted and it goes on for decades yeah this is simmons description here spence was the kind of criminal simmons knew well a rough poor and full of swagger a middle school dropout with a fondness for beer marijuana and amphetamines he married at age 16 became a father of two by 18 divorced at 20 he'd robbed a fort worth convenience store with a hatchet at 21 and served 15 months By the time he had got out of prison, he had become entranced by the biker lifestyle. He got tattoos of dice on his right arm and Harley wings on his left. Now 24, Spence had become more and more unpredictable and violent, but he was lonely in jail and he liked to talk. So that's where Simmons found his end with David Wayne Spence. So it's interesting to me, the ages of all these people, right? So at this particular time, Gilbert Melendez is 28. He's already been in prison in the 70s. 
You've got David Wayne Spence, 24, who's already been in prison. These are, you know, when we talk about what makes a murderer or a, a criminal, mm-hmm. these people are starting young. I know it. It's remarkable that just that paragraph where you just said, and then you put that together with. So, okay, I'm going to back up. One of the things that's, that's that turns out to be true about child molesters and it also tends to be true about rapists, serial rapists is that by the time you catch the child molester, there's hundreds of others that you haven't, they've molested hundreds. I think there's an average of 300 something, and sometimes it's up to 800. And the same thing with rapists, right? We only know the cases that came forward. And they raped this boy, they stabbed him, and they forced him to perform oral sex. That is a rape, that is a scary-ass sexual assault that traumatized this child. I promise you, there are other children, teenagers, women out there, boys out there, that they did the same thing to. And that this happens to be the one that went to the police because he went to the hospital from a stab wound or something, right? Mm-hmm. These guys were not good guys. Now, I'm not saying whether or not they did the Lake Waco murders. I'm just saying they were not good guys. Yeah, absolutely. They were not good guys. And along with, while this is happening, I told you that people are surmising and it's really hard to know because David Wayne Spence is a talker. He loves to talk. And he loves to brag about possibly killing these kids. And tons of people in the jail are coming forward saying he was bragging about it. But simultaneous to that, we also know that there's a high possibility that the officer in charge of this investigation may have been feeding details to informants in the jail. I mean, it's just too much of a coincidence that every one of his cases are solved by informants, right? So at some point, a detail is brought out, and I don't know how this played out, but but someone in the jail said that Jill had had her nipple bitten off. And because of all the the stab wounds, people didn't even think about it, but then they look back at the autopsy photos, and basically Truman is saying, it looks like somebody was biting her. Some of these are bite marks. So there's this forensic odontologist by the name of Hale, that has worked with Simmons before on cases with bite marks. And so he blows up autopsy photos and they get a mold of Spence's teeth. And this guy says his teeth match up to the bite marks. So then Vic Vizel, which if you saw the special on, I always forget this guy's name because he's so forgettable. The confession killer. <laughs> really, Lucas. Thank you. <laughs> Henry Lee Lucas, if you saw the special on the confession killer, Vic Vizel, do you know who, did you watch it? Oh, yeah. He's the district attorney that went after the Texas Rangers and the police for using Henry Lee Lucas to clear their cases, even though he didn't commit. So, of course, at this point, Vizel is known as someone who's a pretty good district attorney and not someone that's just going to railroad people. But it's also sowed a lot of distrust between him and the police force, too. Exactly. So the police don't like him. Right. But the bite evidence, and at this particular time in the 1980s, people really thought the bite evidence was pretty solid. And now people are like, not so sure about bite evidence as being... Yeah, I read a whole... I could talk about that for a while, too. That is junk science. It's junk science. But based on the bite evidence and the, the jailhouse snitches... They felt like they had enough to go forward. But what they really, really needed was to place 
somebody at the scene of the crime and to make all the deals, the, the details come together. Well, basically Truman went to the Melinda's brothers and said, look, it's common thing police do. Spence is, is dishing on you. This is your one opportunity to, to come forward and, and say what it is. And he's like, if you confess and testify against them, then you won't get the death penalty, basically. And Gilbert is a bad guy. Gilbert even says he's a bad guy, but he's just pretty adamant he didn't do this bad thing. But he said at this particular time as a Mexican in Waco, Texas, he knew the score. He knew he was going to die for this if he didn't cooperate with Truman. Yeah, that's an important part of the story too. You know, how how the death penalty looms so large over people who are in situations like this. And it looms large over this story. If it weren't for the threat of that, I don't think we'd get confessions and and we would, and that you know, plea deals. Give me life in prison, either that or you're, I know I'm getting the death penalty if it goes to trial. But then they plead. So I read it on a couple of different sites and I can tell you the name of the sites. Uh, Texas Monthly doesn't give an accounting, which is really interesting because how can you give an accounting of what happened that night, right? If the people who are convicted didn't do it, then it's a made up story. But I started going to websites. Uh, one was Texas Moratorium. Another was lawjustica.com. And there's this accounting of what happened that night. And it reads like, like Hustler Forum or something. It's just super creepy. This had never happened to me before in my life. It was just gross. The description. I don't know. It's just kind of, there's something. started off. out like any other night. And right knocked on my door right right I, I don't know it was just especially on one of the the sites I was like is somebody just making up what they think is this like fan fiction is somebody making up what they think happened but then really? I, okay tell me what what's the who, who's whose accounting is it that sounds made up it's obviously whatever these guys Gilbert and Tony Melendez says happened okay the Melendez is okay and probably the jailhouse snitches, their versions of what David Wayne Spence said happened. So, so then that means that Truman, our lone wolf, Dirty Harry, uh, Truman fed it to them. They fed it to the, they refed it back and said, and this is the story, right? Like well, what, either- what we're getting is probably where that the cop just made it up to make all the pieces fit, fed it to the snitches. And then that's what got back to him. It's either that or it's the real story. I mean, the details are very detailed. Like there's there's creepy details. Like like there's one detail that stood out to me that it's talking about how Spence is like straddling the girl and taking the knife and like creepily running it along her breast, you know, stuff like that. It's like a lot of detail. Yeah. But I don't know why, maybe that is what happened. No, in fact, it's a hallmark of false confessions. Overly detailed stuff. I, yeah. I mean, I thought it was highly detailed and well-written. It was like a, mm-hmm. a, I don't know. It was strange to me when I read it, it didn't ring like the confession of one of these guys. Because also when people commit these kind of murders, a lot of the times they're embarrassed or don't want to reveal all the details or they were in such a frenzy from 
the attack that they were committing or watching someone commit, they don't remember every fucking detail. Right. And there's drugs involved. They're probably going to be blacking out or, you know, losing their minds anyway, not remembering shit. Well, there's so many false confessions that involve so much detail. It's so simple to feed it to somebody sitting across the table from somebody. So I bet you he took the knife and did creepy things, didn't he? Come on, didn't he? Didn't he? Yeah, you're right. He took the knife and did creepy things. You know, you just, uh, it just snowballed like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and interestingly enough, uh, at one point that they were like nervous about the testimony because Gilbert and Tony's stories didn't match up. But then some of the, some of the criticism is also ridiculous. This is where I go back and forth, right? Okay. Because one of the things somebody said was, well, Jill had big breasts and the other girl, Raylene, was flat chested and they confused which one was flat chested and which one had big breasts. And I'm like, that's a weird thing to worry about being confused. Like these guys are not having a, a relationship with these girls. You'd be surprised if they even knew their names. So the fact that they confused who was chestier is not a big flaw in their stories. So, and you know, I- That's the big thing saying that was- that was one of the things- What? I'm like, God. That boy, they need better defense attorneys if the, if the, uh, the breast size- Tell me which one was a 32A and which one was a 34D. I don't know. Like, I'd be surprised if they remembered what color eyes they had or or hair color, but I mean- and you know what else is this? If we're going with this, but I'm just going to spell out how ridiculous the lone wolf cop's story is. If this is a hired attack from a dude who got a life insurance policy and they got the wrong girl and when they got the wrong girl, they also frenziedly stabbed another dude and another girl and then raped them and hooked them across a lake and put them to different places and like First of all, a hired attack doesn't end up in a frenzy of stabbing. It's just, it's not a hired attack. And these guys, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. It says here, it was just what Simmons had been waiting for, a statement from an actual eyewitness. But as Bayer soon pointed out, there was a problem. When asked for details on Spence's car, Melendez said he was in a station wagon, yet Spence hadn't bought the station wagon until two weeks after the murders. Simmons went back to the inmate and even taking him to Caney Park and Spiegelville Parks the next morning over two days. Melinda's gave three statements that included other discrepancies, such as different times for when Spence arrived at Caney Park. Simmons thought the inconsistencies were likely due to Melinda's drug and alcohol addled memory, but the changing statements plus the fact that Melinda's claims it had been Spence alone who did all the rapes and killings made the other investigators suspicious. Though Melendez took two polygraphs and seemed to confirm his involvement, he also recanted his confession entirely. I'm so fucking tired of hearing about polygraphs. <laughs> okay, people in law enforcement, they ignore it if it conflicts with what they believe and they pay attention to it if not. Like, I'm so fucking tired of it. It doesn't hold up in court. Why are we still doing this? Well, and the whole point of it is to show it registers that you're nervous or that you're having like some yeah. sort of raise in your pulse. I mean, yeah. so there's so many things that can cause that. So it's the same thing with them. We figured out pretty early on that testing somebody's temperature for COVID didn't really 
yeah. tell a whole lot. So James, when I had COVID, I never had a fever. Yeah. So James had a dentist appointment in the summer and he had to run to get to it on time. So when he got to the front door, he was sweating and like panting. And of course, when they ran his temperature, there you go. They He's wouldn't got, let him in. They wouldn't let him in. So these tests are, they test one aspect of a person's physiology, but it doesn't necessarily prove guilt or innocence of anything. And the idea that you have so many, like you could lie about it, pass the polygraph, and then DNA proves you did rape the girl. Why did, why did we do this? Anyway. Exactly. Exactly. So basically, this was one of those situations where people are going to believe the police and no matter what, these guys are bad guys. Deeb wasn't necessarily a criminal, but he was the person of color in an area where I don't think there were a lot of Jordanian immigrants in Waco at that time. And one more little interesting detail, because again, they're trying to connect the murder scene to these guys and details. Someone had mentioned a bracelet and this was during the trial, by the way. And the 12 jurors found Spence guilty in less than two hours. As the verdict was read, Spence stared solemnly and a collective gasp went up from the courtroom. His mother, Juanita White, who attended every day of the trial, burst into tears. Three days later, Spence was given the death penalty. A week later, Simmons felt like taking another look around the lake. He asked an investigator with the DA's office to accompany him, and the two men wandered through Caney Park, about 25 yards from the spot where Tony said Jill was murdered. Simmons was suddenly overcome by a strong feeling. He grabbed a stick and dug deep in the leaves, and there in the dirt lay a golden bracelet. The lone wolf does it again. Yeah, because remember, the, the Melinda's brothers have now recanted their confessions, so he's got to find a way to connect them to the crime. Yep. Two years later, oh. that bracelet's just sitting there. Yeah. And he brought someone with him to witness that he didn't plant it. Right. Could the bracelet be Jill's? He took it to the girl's mother and aunt who both said, spoiler alert, she had a bracelet like Jill's. As the trials for the Spence's accomplices approached, the discovery seemed to be a sweet validation of his work. Nice. So anyway, and and these guys, the Melinda's brothers are constantly changing their story throughout this whole thing as well. But um, the brothers' testimonies differed on some details. Tony said they'd partied for two hours before the violence began and then stabbed Jill. Gilbert said the violence began almost immediately and Tony stabbed Raylene, but they were consistent in their portrayal of a night characterized by beer, weed, and bloodshed. So they killed them and then moved them and dumped them? I guess. At the beginning, they said that there was a struggle at where the bodies were found. They were struggling after they died? It's very confusing. I mean, I'm no scientist. No. It's not not sure. Unless we're in The Walking Dead. Yeah, it's very, very confusing. It is so so confusing. Y'all, and I'm telling you, audience, we are trying our best to straighten (laughs) this out for you. And it is almost impossible to tell this story without it being confusing as fuck. We're trying. We're trying. So everybody goes to jail. Yeah. Yeah. So now David Wade Spence got the death penalty. Gilbert and Tony, life in prison. And Deeb is going to have life in prison they're all sent away case solved case closed everybody goes to jail and that's the end of the story right well not so fast a woman by the name of jan evans was 29 years old and a police officer from detroit 
She wanted to move somewhere warm, better climate. And Waco was- Maybe she'd been watching Chip and Jojo and thought, Waco's paradise. Well, Chip and Jojo didn't exist yet. (laughs) That was the joke. Okay. Sorry. Good joke. (laughs) So- I thought I was being funny. And then you said, wait a second, not so fast. So Jan moved to Waco. She was very familiar with the Lake Waco murder. She had been following it. Evans had seen plenty of murder and mayhem in her career, but nothing this macabre. So she liked the way people behaved in Texas. They were kind of laid back and everything was kind of easygoing. And that was better than Detroit for her. She got some howdy ma'ams when you walked down the street. Yeah. And she fell in love with another police officer in the department and they got married. So she became Jan Price. And over the years, she ended up becoming a detective and she and her husband actually worked together, which kudos to her. I don't know that I could work. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a lot of stress to share. That is a lot of together time too, man. Too much together time. Yeah. Can't miss you if you don't go away. (laughs) Exactly. She was working the late night shift she was the detective on call i'm just gonna read this to you because this is texas monthly it is and i gotta tell you this is like wtf you're just like dun 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 (laughs) when you hear this almost five months after the final conviction in the lake waco murders on march 2nd 1986 jan price got a call about a questionable death at a house on north 15th street She and her husband found a footprint on the front door, which had been kicked in, and some smudged fingerprints around the house. In the back bedroom, facing down on the bed, lay a nude body of a 52-year-old woman. She had been raped, sodomized, and beaten, and suffocated. Her name was Juanita White. Do you remember that name? The mother of the... That's David Wayne Spence's mother. That is a (laughs) dun-dun-dun. Right? Wow. Five months after all these guys have gone to jail for this crime, and it's kind of suspicious circumstances, right? And then this man's mother has been murdered in this way. Investigators learn that she had gotten off from her late night shift hmm. at Uncle Dan's Barbecue. I, that's a very, very good barbecue place, by the oh, way. Oh, it is? Okay. She didn't show up for church the next morning. So the Sunday school teacher came by to see where she was. And the Sunday school teacher walked in on the scene and then called. Oh, pretty awful. This is why you should go to church. If you miss, people will come and find your dad. That's right. That's right. There's so many people who just lay there because they're not expected anywhere on a Sunday and nobody looks for them. I will say this in all fairness. I don't identify with certain aspects of the story because for whatever reason, probably my parents, but. I didn't ever hang out at the lake and smoke weed or drink or any of that. I wasn't involved in that scene. My family was pretty religious. So it was a lot of church youth group stuff. And like we were perhaps dabbling on the edges of getting in trouble by like teepeeing people's houses and stuff. But, you know, (laughs) I wasn't involved in that scene. You know what I mean? Uh So this this is foreign to me. But like the idea that you don't show up to church and somebody goes to check on you is a very real thing in Waco. I will say there is a sense of community among people and people do look out for each other. So I think that is a nice thing. I think in LA, you could probably die in your home and like people wouldn't come find you for a month, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And uh, you and I know somebody that that happened to. Yeah. But especially for this 
this poor woman, Juanita White, you know, she was married four times. And uh, she was 52? Wow. Yeah. Okay. She was poor. So, but wasn't she instrumental in trying to gather evidence that her son did not do these murders? Yes. Wasn't she? Absolutely. Okay. You're going to say fine. it, but I'm not. I could, oh, no, no, I think it's fine for you to say that because okay. I like your tracking with me. She's a very poor woman. She's had a, a really, really hard life. And basically the only thing that was taken was her purse and her purse was dumped out in the parking lot of a hotel or something. Mm -hmm. But then after police did their whole initial sweep of the house and left, when they went back the next day, it had been revealed that someone had broken in a second time and found a box of David Wayne Spence's papers, I'm assuming having to do with his court case and stuff, and rifled through it and stole stuff. Ooh, creepy, right? That's really creepy. So Jan Price then learned that White had been conducting her own investigation into the Lake murders, going to bars and asking questions, interviewing figures in Waco's, now I had to look up this word, I'm not even sure how to pronounce it, it's spelled D-E-M-I-M-O-N-D-E. Demond? I don't know that word. My guess, like kind of underbelly. It, it's a e 19th underbelly. century <laughs> a French term for a class of women considered to be of doubtful morality and social standing. Oh, uh, sex workers. Demimont. Demimont, yes. So all right. we're, this whole texas monthly article is written in texan and then all of a sudden it just <laughs> it's written word. in texan <laughs> you know it's uh texas a whole other country right uh, so they're, they're just wait interviewing, so it's like you're reading this and you're like saying she was going to bars asking questions <laughs> working at the barbecue in the waco's demimond yeah why do they just say sex workers are funny i don't know Oh, back then they would have said prostitute or something. Uh, Walker. <laughs> looking for evidence to prove her son hadn't killed the three teenagers. White had another son, Steve Spence, who told officers that she had begun to receive threats. She also thought her phone was tapped. A few days before her death, White had received a letter from the informant who told jurors that Spence had confessed to biting off Jill's nipple. In the letter, Snelson wrote that he had made up the testimony. Uh, White rushed the letter over to Spence's trial attorney. She was really excited. On that Friday, she said, I think I found out what happened. I have a witness. Two days later, mm. White was dead. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. So mm. I think that's where we'll stop for today with a bit of a cliffhanger. And like I said, coincidences happen for sure. But this is a crazy coincidence, if it is. Yeah, it's, there's, some, there's too much weird shit surrounding it. Yeah. Can yeah. you imagine being a juror yeah. on this trial? No. I can't imagine how long it must have taken to them to explain all this shit. In the second episode, we can talk a little bit more about the trial and the things that weren't allowed to be brought up by the defense, like other people who might have done the murders tampering with evidence tampering with witnesses yep. using the law as a weapon against people that are trying to reveal the truth i mean it's crazy what ensues after this if you think what you've heard up until now is batshit crazy you ladies and gentlemen 
or ladies and then one gentleman hi dan you have not heard that shit crazy until you hear the rest of it. It's it's insane. I mean, it's it is. It really is. It's your bingo cards ready because corruption and false confessions. Now we have we have several rapes. We have witness tamper and harassment, murder threats, like literally everything that you can think of. Yeah, it's so crazy. If you wanted to do a true detective <laughs> season just on this, it would probably be two seasons. A true detective. <laughs> people wouldn't believe it they'd be like that's bullshit that stuff would right. never happen <laughs> yeah all right do you want me to wrap this up and then we'll yeah, uh let's wrap we it up continue this next time part two coming up next week yeah um all right you've been listening to now fear this and this is hopefully a convoluted episode i can make some sense of <laughs> in the meantime you'll um go to our website fearthispodcast.com send us an email fearless at nowfear.com tell us what you fear give us five stars on itunes give us a funny review and we will read it on the show and go to our website it'll change your life life changing for sure but you already know that or you don't do you because you haven't signed up yet it could be news to some people i've checked and there's like a few states where no one's no one's listening to us Mm. so at some point we're gonna get you vermont i don't think we have anybody in vermont so by the way if you live like in maine or New Hampshire, go to Vermont and download us just so I can have somebody from Vermont yeah. listening to us, please. Spread the word um, in Vermont. I don't know. I like Vermont. They need to. I know. I, well, people in Vermont need their lives changed too. Thank you. All right. Okay. Bye. bye.